Dive into the world of dance at the Victorian College of the Arts. Their program offers a unique blend of artistry, performance, and choreographic practice within an inclusive environment. As an undergraduate student, you explore contemporary dance, physical theatre, ballet, urban dance, and more in a collaborative studio lab setting. At honors level, specialize in performance skills, choreographic practice, or dance research. Plus, benefit from the proximity of local choreographers and companies, including Philip Adams, Stephanie Lay Company, Lucy Guerin, Chunky Move, and Dance House. Through professional placements, their students have the opportunity to develop pathways for their future careers through these relationships and networks. Consider a variety of bachelor, masters, and even doctorate programs available according to your needs. Join them and unleash your artistic potential at the Victorian College of the Arts. Learn more through the link in the descriptions below. I don't want them to think about the floor at all. <laughs> I want them to enjoy their dance. They live, you only live once, uh, you know, and um, our job is to support in the background and people be unaware to the people not to be injured, people to be able to dance for as long and as hard as they like. Hello and welcome to The Background Dancer. I'm your host, Jason Yup. Thank you for joining me with our community of passionate dance contributors from around the world and across different fields. In this weekly podcast, I offer educational conversations and insightful tips to help you better understand all things offstage about this curious art form. this episode, I explore the technology of dance flooring and the growth of Harlequin floors with Guy Dagger, Harlequin Group CEO and Managing Director at British Harlequin. Hello, Guy. Thank you for coming on to the show and a huge honour to have you on The Background Dancer. I'm absolutely honoured to be joining you guys, actually. Thank you very much for the invite. Great stuff you put out. I have had a wonderful experience with Harley Quinn all the way going back to, I think it was 2016, my first time at the International Association for Dance, Medicine and Science, IADAMS in short. And that was really my first steps into the dance sciences and the dance health industries. And I remember leaving the conference with these little gifts from Harley Quinn. I remember at the time I was like, I'm going to get in touch with this company at some point again. And five years later, I have you right now and we're going to talk all things Harley Quinn. So thank you for coming on. So I can't wait to get started. I have to say, Adams is a great organization and they've just taken the health of dancers and they've just taken companies like myself, my own, and pushed us and asked a lot of us and we've encouraged us to invest in research. And it's had a massively positive influence on dance. I mean, I think one of the elements that always comes through to me is some of the research generated an extra 10 years worth of life uh, for professional dancers if they were using the right floor. And that was the research originally done by Dr. Luke Hopper, actually. So, uh, and that was all through IADAM. So good on them. Let's get things started off with a very essential question for all the listeners. What is Harlequin and why was it first established? 
Harlequin actually is a family company. I'm lucky enough to, my father set it up. I mean, he was originally the sales director for a company called Marley. Now, if you dance in the States, you will hear the term Marley used by some of the older generations. And he was the sales director. And one day, David Moggeridge, who at the time was the technical director of the London Festival Ballet. Now we're in ancient history here. London (laughs) Festival Ballet is the predecessor of what is now English National Ballet. And mm. back in the 70s, David Mockridge uh, contacted Marley, and, and we were, at the time, were based in Kent, where, we, where I'm speaking from now in the southeast of England. And um, he uh, met my father, and David said, we, need, we like your product, but is it possible that you can make it double-sided? At the time, I think it was a nice, good 70s color with a light tan gray, something like this. And so um, we, uh, my father managed to convince production to make it, and we started generating the floor and um, festival used it. They recommended it to American Ballet Theatre, the Royal, Paris, and it went on and on. And so and then my father went to the managing director of Marley. His name is Broadbent at the time. And they said, We've, this is something really amazing. We're doing something crazy and it's really changing the way that people can dance because historically people were dancing on, um, what should we call it, um, I've forgotten the name, uh, stagecloths, painted stagecloths, and they were like sandpaper and uh, <laughs> very inconsistent and also very expensive on shoes because it sanded the shoes away. So the manufacturers of the um, dance shoes at the time were probably not euphoric about them moving over to or, um, to the, the double-sided floor, which we now call reversible. Uh, originally, the Marley floor that they called reversible, they called a harlequin. My father named it. And then um, Mr. Broadbent said to my father, we're not going to continue with this. It's not the type of volume that we, we want to do. So my father said, can I buy the plant and manufacture it myself in Kent? And he said, yeah, you're welcome to. So my father got the money together. And because he'd seen the massive impact it was having on choreography, the consistency and everything. So and my father, frankly, loves traveling around and seeing the lights of Oh, uh, Misha Barishnikov and all the rest of it. They've seen them dance, and he was just enthused about it. And he said, this, this is something great fun. We should be doing this. And that's how the business set up. And now I'm doing it. And my father's still, uh, he's still involved in his 80s. And, um, and he, as soon as we're allowed to travel again, he'll be going back to oh, Pacific Northwest and San Francisco and ABT and watching performances because it's just part of what we do. So it's good fun. I enjoy this job. It's a good job. Yeah, speaking of Pacific Northwest, I also know that they just installed new Harlequin floors very recently, if not mistaken. And it, I saw the images; they were beautiful. Yeah, I think they're on Harlequin Studio, actually. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. There's um, and I have, I have I look forward to going back there for too long. Oh, when we're allowed to travel to the states again, that'd be wonderful. Fingers crossed. <laughs> exactly. <yes>. Exactly. <laughs> so speaking of all these different companies, uh, like we have all these different ballet companies, and then also adding on to that, the conservatories, the dance conservatories. And that's when it was a real point of realization for me when I spent four years at the Hong Kong Academy for Performing Arts, only to know that most of our floors were Harlequin floors, right? And we just have had such a privilege dancing on those floors, never really understanding what they've done for us. So what clients are best suited for Harlequin products? And this question is really more about like what Harlequin represents and how it stands out from its competitors. 
Yeah, I mean, one thing to bear in mind is Harlequin is, uh, we're talking about dance floors. I mean, we are a flooring company and we do a lot of other areas. So I'm going to limit this whole conversation to dance, but I'm not going to talk about stage building and I'm not going to talk about, we do a lot of work with television and events and stuff like this. So rock and roll and all these other things. So I thought, because in going back to the history of the company, you couldn't survive on um, dance floors because it's a relatively niche market around the world. But in terms of what we've really enjoyed and what's taken us and driven our innovation is that dancers have asked a lot of us. I mean, if you go back to, I mean, I'm dropping names like they're going out of fashion here, but Nureyev, he was very much wanted to a slightly softer. If we went away from the Harlequin reversible, the double-sided one, we were, the Germans uh, were particularly keen on, and Hamburg, etc., on having uh, what is, that you would have danced on at the APA, which is Harlequin Cascade. But in Paris, uh, they wanted something slightly softer. So we had to have a, a foam-backed product so that you could get uh, supported point work, where the, the, and, um, that, which was a more sort of uh, egalitarian product, if you, if you pardon the pun for the French. Um, <laughs> and it was, yeah, so, and that's the same. And that was Pacific Northwest, as I mentioned earlier. They adopted the same thing. So... There is a bit of a dividing line, and we need, it's sort of like fitting a shoe, really. We have to sort of understand the choreography, the, in the, the, what, how it interacts with other parts of usually an opera house and people, what people are up to. And then sort of like, as much as you might choose a Capizia or a Freed or a Block or, or a Gainaminden or whatever, once you've sort of found the one that you work with, that was the way it works. And it usually divides often down the studio versus cascade line for professional dancers. And so, and in, and then that carries on for years and years. In um, Australia, there was a competitor, and they had a um, more slippery floor. But most of the choreography, they got used to it, and they didn't like a more grippy floor. Uh, sort of, um, and so we had a challenge there about how to sort of fit them to a new floor. So when we worked with the oldest company down there, which is West Australian Ballet. We there had to do a combination of various floors to get it just right for them. And then that's been replicated now at Australian Ballet, where Queensland are going to stay mainly on studio. They do have a cascade. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's, it's horses for courses, and it's what each company needs and what's sort of the DNA of that company, really, as things go on. So it's, it's not an instant answer, that one. Sorry, I should have been more concise. <laughs> no, absolutely. So it's all about the, I think the differences of, like you said, you know, the companies and how they sort of approach their work, right? And yes, picking up the phone and go, Harley Quinn is the best partners for this kind of work. And I'm pretty sure there are a lot of competitors. For example, you've already mentioned that you did not only cater to the dance industry, you cater to other industries as well, the visual yeah. arts, the events management, but it's the dance industry that I think Harley Quinn has had the most impact on. So you have offices in almost everywhere, right? Czech Republic, Luxembourg, US, the UK, Australia, Hong Kong. Like yeah. I'm really interested to know how does different cultural as well as maybe climatic differences influence product design product delivery uh that's interesting i mean if we this is a question about how we segment dance now because you've got obviously different types of dance and i'm going to try and limit this conversation away from ballroom and i'm going to take it away from flamenco and the percussive dance and i'm going to keep it very much to 
classical and modern contemporary, that sort of thing. Absolutely. Um, and this is, um, I think, what we're all here to see, talk about. I mean, if you're looking specifically towards the Western classical types, then you've got to look towards that history, the continuity, that uh, the choreography and following all the way through. Things like climatic and stuff like that, it's slightly, it's not overly relevant in the performance space because there are a lot of environmental guidelines for these performance spaces. I mean, dance spaces are supposed to be between 22 and 26 Celsius, uh, not too much humidity, et cetera, et cetera, and air exchanges and stuff like this. So on a high-end professional venue, those things are going to be managed out of the equation. Where you have challenges is touring. So if you were to be taking a floor for and through Saskatchewan in the winter and you were going to be for various opera houses and performing, and then you're going to be taking your floor to possibly minus 20 Celsius, maybe 20, minus 25 Celsius, and up to plus 26 Celsius. These, uh, it doesn't like cold, but it's formulated to work in the environmental guidelines, you know, that 20 to 30 Celsius air window. And if you go below sort of five degrees, then you'll find the floor getting too fast. And uh, you, But, I mean... You've got bigger problems there with the dancers, frankly, not being able to work in those temperatures. Um, there is, um, you do this, particularly in COVID times, we're getting a lot of challenges of people who wish to perform outside for obvious reasons. And we had to do a job in the only place that doesn't have uh, the pandemic, which is Western Australian Ballet. There they perform outside in a space called the Quarry, and they have one of very few heated floors. What we did is into the panels, the sprung floor, We've integrated the heating elements so that when they perform at night under a clear sky, you don't get condensation. When it gets to dew point, you don't get the dew point dew all over the stage. So they heats up the floor to about 26 to 28 Celsius and so drives the um, water off the floor. But the problem is all the dancers adore it because it, they lie like sort of, uh, sort of lizards in the sun, frankly, warming up on the floor because uh, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, you've just, Basically, if we understand what people are up to, then we can make the floor to their requirement. But for, for performance, it's okay. Where we have to be more careful is underfloor heating when it's getting super hot in some areas in the summer. Places like where the air conditioning may be turned off, like the tropics, those sorts of places we have to be a bit careful. And um, and we just we also got to make sure that the product lasts for you know twenty years or so. In, under those conditions. But if we know what people are up to, it's okay. Apart from if you get a choreographer, and I will keep, remain nameless about which one, who covers it in two tonnes of sand at the end of the performance, and then it's a bit of a challenge to be <laughs> sandblasted by the choreography. But, but, you know, we've seen many things over the years. Yeah, absolutely. So, and the reason why I asked this question as well is quite recently, because of the pandemic, the HKAPA was very generously donated personal individual practice floors for the students. And I think that was something that was very much appreciated. And I think that's, it has a lot to do with the cultural aspects as well of how we deal with such generosity, what we do with these floors when we have them. Like, what do we do when we go home? Does it make people a little bit more hardworking? Do they find it redundant because we have all these floors already in the companies and such? So that's kind of where my curiosities originated from. Actually, I, w I wouldn't completely ignore that. There is a really interesting 
conversation not to be had with me, but to be had with maybe some of the larger companies, where the home practice um, viral event, which happened last year, uh, <laughs> it's, and that whole event um, has driven a huge surge in interest in dance and ballet. And it's been, it's, well, you certain, there were lots, a number of the larger companies had some concerns about audiences in the future. Now they have huge um, sort of bubble of uh, coming up of people who are interested in the, in the art. And um, it was a sort of a byproduct of the pandemic that there's so much interest in dance now. And people realize it's a way to connect and express and get rid of stress. And it's, it, it, was a, it was a positive outcome from a negative event. So, yeah, I would say the home studio um, mats, um, whether they go to American Ballet Theatre, oh, crikey, I could go on for hours. <laughs> it was a wonderful event, a, wonder, a wonderful thing. Home performing from home has seeded so much interest in, in dance and ballet, in particular. Yeah, so yeah, absolutely, great. sir. Absolutely, it's uh, the world, the TikTok generation right now, and that has really taken <laughs> exactly. over. But it's great. It's great for the industry. It's great for the art form. I think uh, dance can exist in so many different ways, so many different approaches. Be it on a proscenium stage like the English National Ballet or just in a living room. Yeah. Uh, the commonalities between these two is that Harlequin floors do facilitate that process, that learning, right? So yeah. it's really yeah, a step forward. But um, yeah, I'm really also interested to talk about, I think you already mentioned it a little bit regarding some of the challenges you face. What are some of the, the real challenges the company has faced maybe in recent times regards to with regards to maybe like market trends and technological advancements maybe? Can you maybe expand a bit on that as well? I would say at the moment... The biggest challenge is the found space outside. I mean, historically, it's been possible to do everything on the proscenium in that environment, in that controlled environment. Now we need to be outside. We need to engage. We need to be, you know, in the sh everywhere from the sh shopping mall to, you know, on the dockside. Uh, we need to have, um, we've got a lot of street dance and hybrids and fusion coming through from there. I mean, obviously, we've got breakdance at the Olympics coming up later on this year. A lot of these fusions are driving. It's quite challenging because um, what you would need for ballet is not the same as you need for street dance, where you've got shoes or different types of shoes or interfaces. Those things are pushing us quite hard in how we can accommodate different things. The other area is that um, is the bulk of dance is still done in, within the education environment. And there's a lot of demand within the education environment for multi-use rooms, uh, something we fight hard against historically because we think it, the, um, the, the, what's the crucible of a dance studio and what's generated there should, is, is sat hallowed ground and should be protected. But um, there's also market forces. So we've had to develop floors which at the switch of a button go from sprung to unsprung. And you literally just switch, um, do a sort of an iPad on the wall, and you just flick it across. And it go, and um, the wonders of technology, underneath the floor, the whole thing goes from uh, rigid to fully sprung ballet floor. So there's a whole, there's always something interesting going on. And um, <laughs> and I mean, you've had ballet, at, you know, Glastonbury, and and so having to deal with that sort of thing is more challenging than most. 
So yeah, no, there's, there's a lot going on. It's um, and you're getting so much fusion from various indigenous dances that are influencing, and you get it's it's so much, and it never ends. I mean, it's just it's just lucky. I just feel lucky to be part of it, frankly, to be riding the wave of it because it's just it's life fulfilling, really. Hey, Jason here with a special message for you to help and continue serving our beloved performing arts community. So here's what you can do. Share this with one person you believe with this episode can benefit and attach a personal note explaining why. This way, you are not only helping me grow this show, but also adding value to those you truly care about. Massive appreciation as it means the world to me and let's get right back to the show. I'm speaking with Guy Dagger, Harlequin Group CEO and Managing Director at the British Harlequin Floors. Since the company's inception more than 50 years ago, Harlequin has expanded its products and services beyond the dance industry that include events management and even film and TV. Let's take a short break, and when we come back, we continue our conversation about Harlequin Floors and what it means for dancers in the future. For this week's special shout-outs, we hear from Professor Anis, who is a lecturer and academic based in Malaysia and formerly of University Malaya. And he says, I have listened to your wonderful podcast and I'm truly amazed at the corpus of materials as well as information being disseminated. You have such energy and inquisitive dialogics, which makes the podcast truly remarkable. Thank you so much, Dr. Anis. Really appreciate that. And for all of you listening, yes, reach out to me and let me know if you have any feedback regarding the range of topics that I intend to explore on this podcast. And yes, hope you've been enjoying it so far. And that's it for this week's special shout out. Among the host of organizations that have partnered with Harlequin Floors include the Hong Kong Ballet, the Metropolitan Opera, the Impulse Dance Vienna International Dance Festival, and CNBC. Now, so this is off script. We talk about the, the market trends here. Has the pandemic affected the way the company has packaged or designed its products um, or priced its products, perhaps? Oh, yeah. Crikey, yeah. I mean, the um, it's absolutely. I mean, if we'd... Um, hadn't evolved very, very, very swiftly at the beginning of last year, we would have been in a much more difficult position. I mean, we had to basically get to market very quickly with the home, uh, um, the home studio proposal. And historically, we're the um, way we operate is usually long buying cycles with companies. We talk to them for a long time, understand. Then suddenly we're into an Amazon situation where we're having to achieve next day delivery and with the larger companies, when the, um, the dancers were all basically ended up going home, whether it was in Argentina or Brazil, whether or not it was sort of Idaho or whether or not it was in Tokyo. I mean, that literally happened with the Royal Ballet. I think they were exact examples in the Royal Ballet. We were then having to get those mats to all those people in all those places with 
the entire world infrastructure crashing around our ears. And uh, But it was absolutely imperative the mental health of the dancers was protected, that they got those floors so that they could carry on rehearsing and engaging and trying to hold the companies and the spirit together. So, yeah, we had to do a lot of home studio stuff. The bars was another example of it. Uh, the pricing was very different. We had to make it um, highly competitive. And frankly, there was a large amount of loss involved in doing some of it, but we just had to get on with it. And um, yeah, I mean, and we, you know, there was quite a lot of donation went on last year because we're just so keen, just, we just, you know, it's, it's like seeing, you know, the most beautiful thing collapsing in front of you and you just had to do whatever you could to shore it up. And I think, I think the team did a cracking job, actually. I have to give huge shout out to everyone who, who rallied. And also, we didn't, they didn't know what they were dealing with. And a number of them had to come in and in the middle of COVID and make sure that happened. And we had to have people working crazy odd hours so they weren't with other people there's manufacturing had all sorts of challenges but we carried on getting on it and i have to say i I felt thanks to all the people i'm lucky enough to work with on that one it's been a tough situation for one to many companies in the world right now and the unfortunate ones will sink um, due to many reasons and the ones who innovate will survive i guess and i'm very happy to hear that it was always yeah. so i'm afraid yeah it's, it's yeah. always good right <laughs> yeah exactly yeah as an iconic feature of dance how can dancers maybe contribute better towards the growth of the company? Is there a place for dancers to either work for the company um, in some imaginative uh, capacity or maybe furthering the brand? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, when you sort of alluded to this question, I was, uh, I was like, this is the wrong way around. Surely, I mean, this is surely the job of Harlequin to work for the dancers. You know, that's, you know, it's, um, but in terms of, yeah, working with us, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky enough, a number of my colleagues are dancers and um, not one or two of my colleagues have come through the technical side of the um, dance, particularly from Hong Kong. Notice Mr. Kai Ying uh, Chan, I'd noted who just worked at the ballet. Um, but yes, I mean, we would, uh, we hire and we often, one of the challenges within ballet is, well-known to every dancer is what you do when you stop being a professional dancer and you transition beyond. Now, not of all of us can be Lee Su Xing and end up with three unbelievably successful careers, you know, from a stockbroker to coming back and being in charge of Queensland Ballet and, um, and doing an amazing job down there, setting up the academy and everything. Um, but um, for others, it is difficult. The transitions in dance, in fact, it's one of those things that we actually, one of our sort of charitable current, um, donations in the states because i do see it and it is uh, the transition from being a dancer to not being a dancer is a pretty abrupt moment um we um i would strongly recommend to all dancers that they um run at, you know make sure you keep the skill levels up for those transitions and one of the areas we would be looking for people who can come in and advise us we have the, uh, dancers on the team who have now in other, other roles, for instance, uh, product development. There's people, a lot of people in marketing and areas like that. Um, that's where we would be looking for them, but I'm not sure how many dancers really want to be material scientists and goodness works. <laughs> we, we hire a w- weird and wonderful range of people, but obviously we're primarily a manufacturer. So we've got all the sort of skills like CAD CAM and material science and, and uh, manufacturing skills, carpentry and stuff like that. But um, theatre technical is something that always um, is 
globally in short supply um, and that is useful for advising. And frankly, most dancers are great linguists as well. I mean, dancers are naturally engaging with other people. So they're a highly, highly refined skill set, actually. I would, I would say they're very highly hireable as long as they manage to keep a couple of irons in the fire, as, uh, you know, all the way through. And, um, and those who do usually prosper very well beyond their professional dancing career. And we, we hire from that, that pool of people. That's what we do here also at the Background Dancer podcast. My mission is to really introduce all these different forms of post-performance careers, perhaps, for dancers to transition into. I'm not sure whether a material scientist can be a realistic one. I'm not <laughs> sure whether that's a popular pathway to go to, but yeah. it's really nice to bring to surface that Harlequin is providing that possibility. And I'm even just as an advisor, I think, you know, who better to work with than dancers when creating dance floors, right? It just makes complete sense. So I'm really, really delighted to hear that. And hopefully all these aspiring Harlequin applicants in the future are listening right now to this episode. But let's talk about the company and what does the company envisage both in the near and distant future? Oh, crikey. Um, I mean, this, I mean, <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, it's quite a challenging time for the uh, arts in general, and there's a there's a massive shift. I mean, it's sort of from what we knew to the new new real, and um, so most of the stuff that's going on at the moment is more to do with um, evolving to the new real and understanding what the challenges of the new real are. So it's primarily outdoor performance, and it's primarily smaller numbers um, because they're manageable and it's about uh, all that sort of thing. I mean, as the, the, the challenge of travel restrictions is so debilitating, particularly for professional companies, you know, you need to go from town to town, city to city, country to country. And um, those of us who are in Europe, I mean, you barely breathe before you need to get the passport out. Well, if you're British, you have to get your passport out. Um, but it's <laughs> if, if you're wise enough to stay in the European Union, then you you still cross borders every two minutes. And um, and so the challenge with but for dancers need to tour. And so at the moment, it's a funny old time. Going forward, as I said, the um, there's the, the fusion of different dance is driving different products for us. The, one of my uh, bugbears at the moment is younger dancers. Most of the standards, and we are on standards committees and going back to the great work of I Adams. I mean, it was working with various people at I Adams, they did highlight areas of testing, and we were looking at the impact of um, landing on dancers. The original standards that were set up for that applied to dance rules were basically based on an American football or a basketball player is crashing to the floor uh, or wearing thick sneakers. And it was completely unrepresentative of the life of a dancer and the impacts and the injuries that were being caused to dancers because you were applying the wrong model to the whole thing. It was based, I think it's called the Frankfurt or Stuttgart so athlete model, which was based on something like an 80 or 90 kilo male. And um, so already with, you know, when this isn't exactly diversity. And um, and so it's, and they were just they weren't getting any you know it wasn't representative of the, of the professionals dancing. Where I'm most interested moving forward, um, from a technical point of view, and um, is where we look at uh, younger dancers and um, where we've got 
um, you know, weights, much lighter weights, how that they can make sure that we're, how we can ensure we're protecting those growing dancers. I mean, if you take almost any uh, physical activity, let's take something like running or something like that. And if you stress those um, young bones and those growing, um, um, you know, physiques excessively, you end up with injury and long-term injury, you know. And so I'm interested in making sure that we have the right dance floors for a young generation and um, making sure we can protect them through that whole uh, education period. I mean, there are other areas that, I mean, are less interesting to talk about, but I'm, uh, I've got children, as I said, we're a family business, and the recycling and ensuring that we have cradle to cradle in our manufacturing is something that I've been banging on about for 10 years ago. And we've, you know, making sure that everybody in the supply chain is, you know, forestry, stewardship council, you know, so, and everyone has the ease to, make sure all the products can be recycled at end of life. And um, I think we have a moral duty to get that right as well. So those sorts of things are sitting, you know, sit on our product development desk every week when we sit down for the meetings. And so, you know, that's where we're at, really. I believe I can consider myself as a relatively young dancer. So <laughs> it's wonderful to hear that, uh, being part of hopefully a whole new generation, yep, serving both uh, the dance industry, but also the tech industry, I think, very much hand in hand together. That's an interesting point, actually, because, I mean, I was going back to a, I was talking to a, um, a Russian dancer not long ago who are probably on the more conservative end of the scale of um, their approach to the arts and, uh, and certainly ballet. And um, they were saying that the evolution in the, the level of protection offered by the sprung floors is um, permitted and enabled a greater choreography or greater risks to be taken in the choreography because people can leap higher, land harder, roll, their careers will be longer, et cetera, et cetera. Now, as we're trying to take this art into different media, you know, live streaming and how we do this, you know, cross-technology approaches, it's really interesting. And that, you know, the Instagram approach where, you know, that shared one-off experience is definitely challenging and we're going to have to evolve with it and for it. So it's fun and, you know, keeps you, gets you up in the morning. Absolutely. Well, speaking of experience, what do you wish for people to say firstly or think after having a Harlequin experience? I don't want them to think about the floor at all. <laughs> I want them to enjoy their dance. You only live once, uh, you know, and I think Lovely. our job is to support in the background and people be unaware to the people not to be injured, people to be able to dance for as long and as hard as they like. And, you know, we should not be something they're aware of. They should be freed from the sort of the floor, really. All right. Last question for you, sir. And this is an experimental question that I ask most of my guests. What makes a dancer for you personally? Oh, that's an impossible question, Jason. It was most a dancer. Um, I think a dancer brings to a situation what wasn't there before, really. And, I mean, that's why people go to see it. They want to experience something. Um, you know, it's so, it's so ephemeral. It's sort of like butterflies. And it's, it's just like, yeah, I mean, I just love dance simply because 
something I can't do and I recognise the beauty of. And I think we all know that it's absolute perfection is impossible, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't strive for it. Wow, thank you so much, sir. I think that's pretty much it. Such an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I'm a huge fan and hopefully, yes, this is only the start. Oh, it's an honor to be invited along to the background dance. I really appreciate it, Jason. Thank you very much for the invite. And may I wish you a continued success in your career as well and um, sharing it with others. Guy Dagger has been my guest today. He is the Harlequin Group Chief Executive Officer and Managing Director at British Harlequin. Check out the show notes for more information regarding Harlequin floors. And go ahead now and find out if you've been dancing on one this whole time already. Do join the conversation and feedback loop on social media, either on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest or LinkedIn, depending on where you are, and stand a chance to be featured here on the special shoutouts. Happy listening. Have a great week. Stay healthy. Stay happy. And I'll see you in the next one. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. Be sure to subscribe, comment, and leave a review on your designated podcast and social media platforms. If you found this interesting or helpful, feel free to share with members of your community so that they too may connect with us in our quest to foreground dance in the background. I'm Jason Yup of The Background Dancer, and as always, catch you next time. If you're listening to this, you are most definitely a dance enthusiast, maybe even one for dance science. Well, why not join the International Association for Dance Medicine and Science, or IADMS for short, and become part of a global community dedicated to supporting dancers and performers worldwide. With active members from over 50 countries, including experts in dance, medicine, and science, IADMS provides a diverse network of support and resources. As a member, you'll gain access to exclusive benefits such as discounts to year-round events, their vast collection of e-learning opportunities, and a subscription to the Journal of Dance, Medicine and Science, amongst other incredible and unique offers. Join the mission for better outcomes and apply for an IADMS membership today. Click the link in the descriptions below for more info.